वेलकम टू सेंटॉक सिंटॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द काउंट्स एंड अमाउंट्स विल थिंक अबाउट द इंटर रिलेशनशिप बिटवीन अमाउंट और साइज मेजर्स सच एज वॉल्यूम एंड काउंट मेजर्स सच एज नंबर इन अ वराइटी ऑफ डोमेन्स डज नंबर डिपेंड अपॉन साइज वॉट कम्स फर्स्ट वॉट इज काउंटिंग वॉट इज द मोस्ट जनरलाइज मेजर फॉर अमाउंट्स How is the notion of amount different between space and time? How does the cell count? How is spacing between mitochondria regulated? How can one say how many partitions exist? What is the interplay between size and number of cells or organelles inside living bodies? Might the counterintuitive Cantor sets exist? What is the long-term future of this understanding? And what are the open questions? We are pleased and privileged to have two sin talkers with us here today. Dr. Sandhya Kaushika, she is a neuroscientist and is from TIFR in Mumbai. She studies what happens inside neurons. And Professor Stefano Luzzatto, he is a mathematician at Abdus Salam International Center for Theoretical Physics at Trieste. He does research in dynamical systems and chaos theory. He is also involved in many international projects promoting mathematics in developing countries. So, um, Stefano, why don't we set the ball rolling with you in a general place, as one would expect of a mathematician, in the most generalized way? Um, how do you think of the notion of amount? What what is amount? Is it a way of uh, Is there a way of saying something about that in a very general way? How does one measure amount? What 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 comes to your mind when you think of amount? Um, can we make that generic notion mathematical in a in just 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 to get a better grip on the concept? Yes. Good afternoon. Um, I think that is really one of the very most basic and fundamental concepts in mathematics. I think it's a very interesting topic, and of course it's. starts with counting which is in some sense the first real mathematical activity mm-hmm. and uh, in the modern day we have a whole field of mathematics called measure theory which is essentially devoted to a very technical understanding and has generalized this concept very much so i don't want to get too technical of course but uh, fundamentally the first observation is really the distinction between Uh, the different dimensions in which you can measure volume so counting is a way of measuring single objects whereas if you have a curve you want to measure the length of the curve if you have a square or a two dimensional surface you want to measure the surface if you have a three dimensional you measure the volume so i i guess i would say from a mathematician the first observation is that the amount and the counting are two aspects of the same thing you're just measuring in some sense objects with different dimensions so for you length area volume they're all um in a way some kind of a measure of amount or volume is the wrong word but it's some kind of a measure of amount yes yeah, so of amount and the interesting thing is that you need to measure 
the you need to measure each object with the appropriate measurement. I think that's what's interesting. If you try to count how many points that are in a line, you will just get an infinite number. So you will not be able to distinguish lines of different length. Whereas if you try to measure, and similarly, if you try to measure the area of a two-dimensional object, either with by counting points or even with a line, you will also get an infinite. So if you want to measure the length of a curve, you need to use length. If you want to measure the, the you know, the, the amount of space in a curve, if you want to measure in some sense the size of a two-dimensional, you need to use that two-dimensional. So how does one generalize that to higher dimensions? I mean, I, I think so far so good. I think one gets <laughs> to the Euclidean three-dimensional space. How does one go beyond that? What happens? Well, higher dimension is quite easy, actually, because you can, uh, you know, you can think of... Uh, one, two, and three dimensions as being objects where each point is defined by one coordinate or two coordinates or three coordinates. So higher dimensions is formally fairly easy, even though we cannot visualize it. One of the, when I was a student, I remember a professor making a very interesting observation to me and saying that because I was complaining that something was difficult to visualize or to have an intuition, he said, well, that's exactly the point of mathematics is to be able to help you go beyond your intuition. Right? right, right. And so you can just think of an object that is defined by five coordinates and you can do higher dimension. But what is most interesting is one and a half dimensional. Mm -hmm. What is most interesting is that in mathematics we can give a formal meaning. This is only something of the last hundred years, so it's not, it's relatively recent. The way to formalize what we mean by a certain object has dimension one half or dimension 1.2, you know, we can actually, and they have to be measured with a way of measuring, with a measure in some sense that is appropriate to that dimension. So there's a very strong relation between amount, between the way you measure the size of something and the dimension of that object. And does, does set theory come into this in any way? Set theory is the fundamental language because we uh, modern mathematics is built on the idea that everything is a set with a structure. Right. And so also the measure is a structure. So the set, set of points constitutes the curve, but the fact that you see it as a curve is part of the structure that you impose on that set of points. Yeah, I think we'll get back to this and maybe explore it a little bit more. Okay. So Sandeep, jumping to you, um, you know, this whole business of size and number, this interplay, um, where do you see that playing out? Where do you see that playing out in, in your world? Um, is that an interplay? Is there a relationship between the two? Um, because, you know, there might be some mathematical principles at work, but uh, your world is living and messy in many ways. So how does one think about that? So definitely I would say that there is an interplay between size and number. So I can give you, if you, for instance, look at any tissue, right? You can look at liver cells or kidney, or if you look at a smaller critter like Drosophila and you look at their, there are things inside them called discs. Discs. Yeah, imaginal discs, which become like future wings and other things. But if you look at those discs, what you see is when growth occurs, either normal or aberrant growth, you see that both things change. The size can change. Size of individual cells can become bigger. 
and the number can change. And there's a close interplay between the two, even though it is not extremely well understood. Some things are what are called intrinsic properties. So the number, for instance, of cells you have, is it can be an intrinsic property of how many times one cell can become another cell. So one cell can give rise to many babies. When you say one cell become another cell, you mean by, by cell, cell division? division. Or, sure. Right. And the concept of how big a cell is, is a combination of what could be an intrinsic property along with something that extrinsically feeds into it from the environment. We certainly, I do not know how to think of this one and a half dimensions which he talked about because I think biologists tend to be rooted in what we can see um, in terms of measuring, doing measurements of size. And, and, and again, when we think about so is there, just going back to the earlier remark you made, Sandhya, is there any result or way to say how many times a cell divides before... Um, it stops dividing? Yeah. Yes, there are ways to measure it, absolutely. And people do measure it. What is less understood is how does a cell know when to stop? Right. When does the cell know when to stop to divide? And there seem to be some... So that would be at the time of cell death, apoptosis, or not ne- much, not much before that? necessarily. Cells sometimes don't die and they exist. Like your neurons, for instance, they don't die. You have a neuron, it's born, its precursor goes back into quiescence, and the existing neuron doesn't divide, but it continues to work. Your muscle cell is also another So when you say it goes into quiescence, it becomes dormant? It becomes dormant. So the right. stem cell itself becomes dormant, but the, the cell which grew out of that stem cell and became a mature neuron, it doesn't die. Hmm. The muscle doesn't die. The hmm. cell remains. So I don't think that there is just dividing and after dividing you die. No, you divide and you can stay around for a very long time. And you can stay around for a fixed period of time. So blood cells, for instance, there is turnover taking place in them and they're continuously renewed. And there are cells which don't die. We still don't understand at the cellular level, let alone the organism level, as to what is the link between a given cell type and its longevity or a given niche stem cell and how many times it divides. And obviously, those are very important biological questions. Uh, we have some clues, but they are just their clues. And then you come back to the interesting question is, what are you counting over there? Yeah. For instance, when you are dividing multiple times, are you looking at some way in which you retain the memory? Like of what, what is has conserved? Come? What is conserved? When? Like what exactly is the underlying principle at work? Why aren't, why as, aren't there more or fewer divisions happening? Right. That's, as I said, that, that is not clear. But one of the things people say is there are some proteins and some signals intrinsic to the cell which can allow it to keep dividing, components which are present, which in some cases at least interface with the information that comes from outside, either growth hormones or signaling components which tell you, yes, keep dividing. And in the absence of that, they don't divide. But there are some which are intrinsic division. So, for instance, if you look at a bacterial cell, as long as there is food, they will keep dividing. Right. Right? Once they run out of food, they don't divide anymore. 
So in some sense, your environment is deciding whether you can divide or not. But you intrinsically as a cell need to have the potential to divide. And sometimes a younger cell will have a greater potential for division compared to an older cell, which might have less of a potential for division because perhaps what happens in its chromosomes, the chromosomes or parts of the chromosomes are not as healthy anymore or there's some way of maintaining cellular age where components, it, at least some components, are old enough and it can sense how old it is. All of these sound like number measures. What about the amount and size measure? I mean, so, I, I know you mentioned there's some kind of an extrinsic influence, at least to some part. But. Yes. So... That's a number measure. There is there is going to be a size measure and that, at least with respect to tissues, nearly always seems to come from external factors, insulin growth factors or something like that, which, and in fact, this is a very so old problem. So size is always a good indicator of something about the environment. Is that fair enough? Is large in biology is rarely yes and no. Yeah, yeah but of course, I would say it's not mathematics. <laughs> you, you don't get things as neatly as Stefano I does. Know, but, yeah. Well, but can I try to make a connection, not so much with the cellular, but maybe maybe we can get there. So uh, one example, again, I'm not a biologist and I'm not familiar, but for example, uh, the lungs, Yeah. as far as I understand, are kind of spongy. Yeah. Right? So which means there's a lot of empty space. When you when you see a lung from what I've seen, it's it's solid in some sense, but actually there's a lot of empty space. So it's made of lots of little uh, perforations. Yeah. Yes, perforations and very, very thin membranes inside it, as far as I know, which are almost two-dimensional you could surfaces. It's divided, as far as I understand, into lots They're of little cavities. tubes, lots of little tubes. Little inside. tubes, exactly. So I don't know if someone's done that, but I would suggest that perhaps the the dimension... Strictly speaking, you say that's a three-dimensional object, but this would be a good example. We have some mathematics. We can construct some mathematical models. You think models it has a fractal like between two and three? Yes, yeah. so you can think of it. That's a because otherwise it seems too abstract and say what does two and a half dimension means? But it's that is an object that is a very good candidate for that. So, you know, when you look at it in a small scale, it looks like it's lots of maybe surfaces, right? Right? It's a, the tissues made of. If you, lots of two-dimensional things, but when you look at it on a large scale, it looks three. It looks like an object. So like you would that. call something like that as being between dimensions two and three. Well, I mean, I, 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 but I, why would you do that? Because even the smallest unit, if you asked me, is three dimensions. In 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 reality, in, the in reality, reality yes, is three. But you're, you're going to abstract it and say well, that it's a two-dimensional, well, like a. In 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 mathematics, if you in 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 the physical world, of obviously everything that exists materially is three-dimensional. Yeah. So. Um, but in the mathematics, you can do a construction where you take a, a solid object and you keep the moving uh, pieces, mm -hmm. right? And you end up with something like a lung, but then you keep the moving so that everything, what is left is really just two-dimensional mm -hmm. curves. And then, but it's not really two-dimensional because they're too thick. Mm -hmm. And so there's a technical way to formalize this. In mathematics, we can be precise and we can measure, we can in some cases say, Strictly, that is 2.43. The dimension of this object is like that. Okay. But this object is is a is a mathematical abstraction of something like the lung. Okay. And what would and so when you have that description, yes. what would you use that description for? 
Uh, that's a very good question. It's uh, to understand know, something, presumably. Yes, because after all, uh, two-dimensional and three-dimensional objects do have different properties. They scale in different ways, for mm-hmm. example. And so the fact that something is two and a half dimensional does have a it would grow differently. It would grow differently. Do different kinds of organelles grow differently? I mean. So I I know you mentioned that everything is kind of three dimensional, but there must be things which are super flat, which can be approximated as being almost two dimensional and so on. Yes, you uh, can, but I matters. think the time when it becomes two, you can make a simplification for, say, a model, where you say that this what is a three dimensional object inside a cell for instance is two dimensional a very simple way of doing that abstraction which almost every every textbook has is to take a microtubule which is a little track right which is a cylinder with many places where molecular motors like kinesins and dynins can walk and just flatten it but they don't move line. in three dimensions they move in um, do they move in three dimensions Yeah. So if a microtubule is flat, it's actually going in only one direction. It can go. It 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 you know it projects in one you know along a length. Therefore, it's you can say one dimension. The degrees of freedom are not three. It's, it's no, but when something moves on it, that depends on what twist the particular microtubule has. So something that moves on it can move, in fact, in this way, in a right. circular way, right. rather than in a straight way. That's going to depend on the original microtubule is actually is a twist, but it is represented for understanding cake as a line. Is there a way of thinking of this, uh, Stefano, in, in terms of degrees of freedom? I mean, I, I know you can, when maybe wearing a dynamical systems hat. I mean, I know these are not... Uh... Well, I think maybe this is exactly a way to get beyond that because... When you try to define integer dimensions, you more or less use that idea. You know, degrees of freedom. In other words, how many directions? How many directions can mm-hmm. you go in? Can you yeah. go in? Yes. So, and so this requires. And I always jokingly tell my students that that's why mathematicians have to really invent new concepts <laughs> that go beyond what we expect. You know, to generalize this idea, you need to start thinking of dimension in a different way because, in terms of degrees of freedom, you just cannot generalize this idea to two and a half degrees of freedom. So the to be able to give meaning to two and a half dimensions, you first need to reinterpret the notion of dimension exactly in a different way. Yes, I think so. And then you can see that this different way, which which is not coincides, nec- which is not necessarily anchored, as I see it, in the traditional physical way in which we understand dimensions. Right. Do you have to think so. about dimensions at all, as far as your problems go and how neuronal activity happens or different kinds of uh, It depends on, it, it depends, so on yeah so it depends on what level you study the problem at the problems that we study yes we do need to think about as to what is happening within neurons instead of saying how multiple the activity of multiple neurons can connect together to give you an output in that case you can be dimensionless to some degree but not for the problems that we study which are very much rooted and what you can see under a microscope what you can measure actually and less of an abstraction there it matters a great deal but conceptually this is a very interesting idea that you sort of i'm still trying to get my head around what you said about lungs and you said you can maybe describe them as you know one and a half or two and a half two and a half yes two and, and a half somewhere between two and, and three yes but what does that mean 
what does that actually mean and and what is it using that what aspect of the lung is its growth or its function can you take are you just trying to describe it and therefore if you see a different kind of lung if you saw that it now had three and a half no, would that always, mean anything yeah. it would always between 20 but that's a good question maybe it would because if you think say of a lung that was really solid yeah then it would have three dimensions yeah so the fact that inside it's all a lot of empty space, you could say, okay, but how much empty space? So that would be a representation of how much empty Between space you have. Between two and three, yes. Yeah. yeah. So how so if it's super solid, it's three dimensional. Yes. It's, if it's like robust, yes. fully solid. And so you do an approximation of that and say, knowing this allows you to say, if you go say between one. And stay, you know, at one point, and you go to. It would anyway always be somewhere between two between and three. Between two and three, but let's suppose you, take, suppose you take your lung and it's empty inside. Suppose so it's let's empty say inside. you start it, and then suppose you just put a few thin membranes, yeah. so two-dimensional membranes. Yeah. That would not increase the dimension. Yeah. You see, that would still be a two-dimensional. Suppose you just have your two-dimensional surface of the lung. And then you insert some two-dimensional membranes. So you need to put a lot of two-dimensional membranes to increase the dimension to 2.1 or 2.2. So if you go from, say, 2 to 2.5, does that mean? The more the more membranes, two-dimensional so less, membranes. So less empty space. It, it, it might still be the same amount of empty space, but it's got more th- uh, things thickness, in it. More thickness. More thickness right. in it. It's more thickness. How does... Uh, because I know when you say thickness, you mean it in a specific kind of way. Um, so what what is thickness? I'm thinking of it just that. As dimension is a way of measuring how how thick your object is. Because I also it's another one of those things that intuitively it's it's hard to. Which to is why we're asking the mathematician in you. Yes, yes. So. Um, um, is there a way of uh, is there such a thing as a zero measure? Yes, for example, if uh, the, again it goes back to this dimension, if I measure a um, points with the long measure, if I try to measure the length of a point, it will have zero measure. A point will just have zero measure, and a lung, if it has two and a half uh, dimensions, and you try to measure the volume of the lung. It depends what you mean by volume. The volume of the lung without the air inside, you know, the volume of the yeah. tissue in the lung, yeah. then probably you would also get kind of zero, very small compared to the actual size of the lung, right? So uh, in this case, not zero because it does have some three-dimensional space. But um, I have a... When I with a blackboard, you can easily construct an example to show something which has one a curve, which is very zigzag, 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 so that it's uh, it has a, it has one and a half dimensions. It's right. very easy to construct in half an hour. I can show you how to construct it. But that it would conveys. that would have a um, a fractal like construct. That's what means fractal is uh, means fractional dimension. Yes, mm-hmm. so. And I think one of the one of the people who mostly you know pushed this idea was a French uh, mathematical physicist called Mandelbrot. Yeah, yeah. And he argued that nature, a lot of things in nature, have fractal dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the clouds, if you look at the trees, if you look at a cauliflower, it tends to have 
um, you know, you cannot really approximate it by smooth curves or by triangles or by lines. So it's more and simulate the lungs. You cannot easily draw the lungs just by using curves. So you can describe so, it. Describe it. So you that can was describe his, it. His, his philosophy was mainly that this is the geometry you really need. If if we think of geometry as a way to describe in the geometry of the world around us, then the Euclidean geometry of triangles and curves is not sufficiently rich. That's the first so, level. So can I ask you a question, which is that if you have this sort of fractal-like space, which you can describe with these fractions yes. of numbers, yes. one place where I can see that it would could be very relevant is if you have feedback... Supposing you want to grow it, right? That's a, that's very important. For instance, you do have, as I said, very old developmental biology problem, uh, first, I think, articulated most famously by Haldane, who said that as you grow, everything grows proportionately. Right. Yes. Even a giant is yes. proportional. Yes. So there is some... But so, volume grows at a different rate. So... Then, I, yes. So what I'm trying to say is that when you make this kind of fractal growth taking place, which is still the same, you know, maybe the complexity increases, but it doesn't change too much. Is there a way in which you can, how it grows, can feed back into the complexity that is generated in exactly. mathematical you, systems? You mean morphologically, how it looks or even the volume of it or... Or I any think, of it, in, in any yes, abstract so. dimension, because that would, you know, what it would do is it would say that if you have this sort of feedback happening, these are only the spaces it can occupy, yeah. and these are spaces it cannot occupy, or that these are the shapes fair. it can take, and these are the shapes it can't take. So, in fact, one of the um, steps towards giving them general definition when I give some, into, you know, did, uh, lectures on this is that if you uh, one of the when I said that you need we need to change our definition of ordinary dimension, it's exactly the growth. If you take um, an interval and you scale it by factor of two or three, then you need two or three of the original interval to make it up. If you take a square and you scale it by two, you need four. It contains four. Mm -hmm. If you take a cube and you scale it by two, you have eight. Mm. Right. 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 So they scale in different ways. So one way to define factors is exactly by this, exactly as you said. You, I think you pointed, put your finger exactly on the point is that if you have something fractal and you scale it by a factor of two, then you will, uh, it will contain, it may contain a certain number of copies of itself, but n somewhere between four and eight. Mm. Right. It may contain five copies of itself. Mm -hmm. And that is the first way in which you can start to define this more general dimension by looking at the scaling properties. Ah. You can actually define. So, based on how that. you describe your first fractal object, yes. it decides how you can scale. Is that, would no, that be a fair? Initially, you could, you, in, in principle, theoretically, you could say, suppose you know how it scales. Ah, that's how you decide, you decide the dimension. So, you, so if you could just get the scaling part worked out, yes. you immediately know how you started and how you would end. Yeah, because if you factor Fantastic. by two and you get eight, it contains eight pieces, you know it's three-dimensional. Yes, yes, yes. And if yes, it takes yes, seven yes, pieces, yes, you know it's somewhere between yes, two and three. Yes, yes. It looks like it would work for larger objects. I don't know how well it would... I still need to... I don't have my head around how it might work for small objects which are discrete and separate from each other, which is sort of what we look at. How do cells count, Sandhya? How is there a is there a qu answer to the how question? 
is there some kind of accounting operation at work inside and within living bodies in for for a variety of functions size yes and as i said the counting works by number of cell divisions that occur typically okay so if you can keep track of how many cell divisions occur then you know there'll be x number of cells in the end but but and the size is of course related to volume right simply because each cell coming from one every time it gives rise to a cell it's not going to give rise to a different kind of cell that's typically what we see in biological systems that you have the same kind of cell coming out you know each division of that precursor cell is going to give rise to the same size and same volume of cells mm. and the number of divisions decides how many cells you have and that's how counting works as far as i am aware and with respect to cells we at least have ideas about how counting works within cells when you look at more numerous things like organelles mm-hmm. we don't seem to have a very good idea of how counting works that's because i think in biology unless you can reliably measure something and perturb the system and do these measurements it's very difficult to uncover the principles under it so with cell division you can calculate do experimentally calculate the rate of division you can find out that information so cell division for example at least for mature bodies or whatever is not just for replacement um i think the idea because that still, could be one way to model the whole thing yes 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 but cell division also occurs during growth of right? course of right? course so of you course. have replacement that would be stem cell niches which come ahead or if you remove a portion of your liver for instance for surgery and then it has to regrow back sure. those are all cases of replacement mm-hmm. but there's also the question of growth so in case of replacement there are stem cells which will repopulate the whole thing in terms of growth also there are larger number of these cells which undergo division and then you know eventually stop dividing so in the end you have a very small pool of cells which are capable of doing the replacement but yes those are counted at the level of individual cells you can have counting and the problem is i think we at least have ideas how to begin to think about it i still feel that within a individual cell inside a cell inside a cell we still are not very clear about because the descriptive space is still not fully done we have some descriptions of what is there where but we don't yet know how the counting works within a cell what do you mean by the counting, the counting so if you look if you look inside a cell if you look at a classic example inside a cell you will see a network of mitochondria you will see you know this organelle called the golgi and each cell type that you take it could be a tetrahymena cell it could be a hela cell in culture which is a mammalian cell each cell of a given type that you take there seems to be you're not going to get five times of, the yeah. number of those organelles is that decided just by the volume of the cell it uh-huh. need not be right especially if there are only few objects and those objects do not fill the entire volume it's hard to see how is it that those numbers either by size or mass or volume are controlled Uh you mean in principle there's space for more but there aren't more and you wonder yes. why Yes. Because one way to think about it is the, if there if there is space for more you should be able to fit. So more. let's let's Because take Because the cell wants more. It's useful to have more. It would be useful to have more. 
how do you dis- define use? You can see that there is a change when X perturbation is done and therefore you think that it is useful. Mm-hmm. But how do you set the set point in the first place? Mm-hmm. Even in metabolism, that's a very big question. How do you set your set point of metabolism? But that's a much bigger and much harder question to address. But within cells, I would think that it is something that we are in a position where we can at least begin to try to Are there relationships... Between you took the name mitochondria, which you think about a little yeah. bit now, are, are there relationships around distance between mitochondria? Is is um, is is that can that be a proxy measure? To... I would think that it should be a proxy measure, right? Because mitochondria are sort of, I would say, they are sensors of a lot of what happens inside neurons. They are key metabolic sensors. They sort of sense where you are and are part of that. They also, uh, you know, form reactive oxygen species. They make ATP, which is how all cellular processes are powered. All the synapses and all. All cellular processes are powered. You need energy for that. Right. And that means that this organelle is both something that takes up things from the environment, but also gives out small molecules, which can diffuse. And... And any cell, if it is long, like a neuron, and if, then you're going to have places where you will have higher concentrations and lower concentrations of things. And if you want to position it, so it's an observation that you see mitochondria present at, you know, at certain intervals throughout the neuron. You see that in any neuron that you look at. Is that, is that periodic or regular enough? It is periodic and regular enough, and it depends on the type of the neuron you look at. And when you see that, you say, okay, how do you set that up? Is it purely because of, is there any reason a priori that you can't fill the entire neuron up with mitochondria? Right. Right? There, I don't see any reason. There are cases where if you make mutants in certain proteins, you can get long mitochondria tube-like structures filling it up. But normally you don't. So what decides how many you put there and at what distance you put there is something which is a counting problem in some sense. And that counting problem, you will have to explain it. I, I don't mean, of course, you can find proteins that change that or carbohydrates that change that or lipids that change that. But inherently, it's much like the fractal problem. Somehow you need to have a system which can recognize and measure distance or measure volume in some way for you to have these kinds of positions take are place. these are these mitochondria signaling to each other so far as we know we have not uncovered it or others haven't uncovered it um, there are certainly sick mitochondria and healthy mitochondria which are supposed to be there uh, there's going to be a combination of both one can in principle say that there can be crosstalk between it but how that crosstalk if anything then gives you an output which functions at a certain length scale or to set two things apart. It's like, you know, people have this idea of personal space, right? And when when some <laughs> when one person comes into that personal space, you sort of have a repulsion sort of effect and you want to sort of, you'll step back. So these are physical chemical things then, you know? I think so. I mean, I'm attraction, repulsion. They need some space around them. They don't need to have it, but long term you see that they are actually positioned some distance apart from each other. Not in the cell, not where you have a cell, but when you have a process emanating from a cell. So how long is a neuron more Oh, it can be as long as, it can be as long as a meter, or as even long more. As a meter. Yeah, you think so, of elephants. 
So, and <laughs> so, in, in relation, so in relation to its volume, it's almost two-dimensional, right? In, I mean, in, yes. In some sense, almost yes. one-dimensional. That's dimensional a great point. Almost, yes, uh, it is. Because it so the volume is yes. it's extremely yes. thin. Right? Extremely yes, it is long. very thin, mm -hmm. which makes it immediately, if it, if, if it is very thin, then you don't have, in my mind, that much room for flexibility in terms of, You can think of it from that perspective, but from from within the biologist's perspective, there isn't that much room for flexibility. If your wall, so I'll tell you, not much degrees of freedom. Mm. Mm -hmm. Not much degrees of freedom. And this uh, is related to this mitochondria, the fact that they are. Uh... We've decided to look. So in my lab, we've decided to look at this problem, uh, simply because it's experimentally at least addressable. But I would say, in principle, it probably applies to um, many things which are present within cells. So when you look at a large object like a cell itself, like I said, you can maybe count the number of cell divisions that occur before it says there are no more to be had. And you all as in, as in you can predict it. You can measure it and you can perturb it. So that's okay? like counting. You count how many cell divisions. Exactly. You can measure it. But you can't predict it beforehand. You can't predict it beforehand. You can predict it for a same tissue type for that same kind of cell. Yes, you in, can predict it. In the it. same environment. But you can't so say on. that, oh, here's a cell I'm seeing you now tell me without knowing where yeah, it comes from. No, that you don't have. Of course. That we don't have. You have to have some. But yes, you can predict it. So at this given stage, at this time, these kinds of cells are going to undergo 10 cell divisions and then they're all going to differentiate and then none or only two will remain, which can still So divide. is there a way to formulate this as a mathematician? I would say if you are asking the questions of why they're at certain distances apart, you'd imagine that something is being tried to optimize somehow. That, yes. That there's something that needs them far apart, something needs them close together, yes. and it's trying to find a balance. Some kind yes. of an optimization solution. Yes. yes. Is that, uh, that would be reasonable. That... So then what would you set as your parameters? So the positions of mitochondria or whatever are some That's kind what of... we can give you from the experiment, is how far mm -hmm. apart they are, or an average, what But is the kind of give, distribution? Can you give the effect if they're closer? Does something increase? Does something decrease? We don't know that. Uh -huh. uh, we can predict that this would be the kinds of things which would increase or decrease uh -huh. based on what you know they will take up and what they will give out. But uh -huh. for a typical healthy neuron, the number and position of mitochondria is more or less predictable? Yes. I mean, for a given neuron. Once you know yes. the... Yes. So then, obviously, the position of those uh, mitochondria... Positions. It depends on something. This, clearly, yeah, that, and it's because it's predictable, clearly they are some kind of critical points or whatever of some kind of system, right? Yeah. It's kind of solving for that again and again mm -hmm. and again. Yeah. Uh, it's solving for that repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Because what we know is that as the neuron grows, the distance between each of them... So if this is your... Mm -hmm. This is your one-dimensional mm -hmm. stage. You have objects within it. Mm -hmm. As your neuron begins to grow... These objects, because you're growing uniformly everywhere. Everyone grows farther apart. Everyone grows farther apart. Oh, so they don't produce more. They, they do produce more. more. No, but if it if it uh. if it grows too far apart, the new ones pop up. New ones uh. pop up. Uh. And that's so there is the... that's what tells you because uh. new ones pop up is when you realize that ah, it is the distance between two of them which must matter. So there's some way in which some kind of a counting operation is at work now. Yes. Of course we are. We are reducing it to 
human maths but there's something yes, something like that yes it is and that is very important and that i think is going to be my point is this is just an example this is going to be very fundamental because clearly if you can count cells even things within cells have to be counted i think at every point because we see scaling in all biological systems there are clear ways in which counting has to happen and obviously the real estate inside a cell and all that it's very valuable it's precious you can't just pack it in randomly so this optimization again there is all kinds of things being solved for yes and that's the other part of some of the things that we do that that if you're physically occupying a space by real estate then other things cannot occupy that space exactly and, so it's and valuable that, it's valuable and therefore it's going to feed in to the positioning issue it's all location 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 and location is going to be decided by what is available to you so yeah so stefano maybe now is a good time to segue a little bit into the more abstract world of dynamical systems themselves right because i know we've discussed it in a very specific context and these are not dynamical systems in most ways but is there a way to say how many solutions there might be how many critical points might there be how many So attractors me, might there be how does one look at a space generally and say how many critical points might exist okay let me try actually to 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 take your question from a slightly different angle and in fact to link it up to something you just said which is scaling mm. so you just talked about scaling so let me connect these two things can you say first what you meant by the scaling what do you mean the scaling that it grows that it is proportional, proportional to a larger to the larger context in which it's embedded proportional right okay. so does the you, you mean that the proportions remain the same the proportions remain at different remain, scales at different scales different scales so, right Some you you, of, you see so, that for instance you do not see people with with a nose which is the length of their face Right. I mean, some some kind right. of ratios are conserved. Some sort of ratios are, are maintained within within first approximation, and this is this you see as a biological principle, irrespective of life form. And right? your point, uh, Sandhya, is that because it's there at this manifest morphological M- phenotype level, level, it there must be something right. They, it must be in part driven by the micro level. Yeah, right? you're using in part, which is very helpful and healthy, but so mm-hmm. it's not entirely reductionist. It's not like the gears and boxes and. No, I they, don't. They, I don't. don't think of it like that it and because i think that would be too simplistic hmm. and and a wrong kind of simplification actually and maybe even the kind of physics or maths or whatever principles that are at work are different at different scales absolutely right? I mean, absolutely But i think the scaling is i i want to kind of come back to come scaling, scaling we also related to your question because uh, on the other hand the the scales at which you see for example uh, noses But my daughters always make fun of mine and say it's a bit too big for my face. <laughs> but um, but I mean the scaling of humans is very the 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 different sizes are almost the same. I mean some people exactly. Are, so we're not talking about the about significant yeah, changes of outliers. scale, right? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But so but when you that, look when but when you look at us when you look at young versus old. You look at a small tree true. versus a big that's tree. Right. Everything is growing, right. Right. but it's growing proportionately. Right. So one of the things that, that we study in dynamical systems that is, um, I think, one of the things that for me fascinates me most is in dynamical systems you have something that evolves in time. So it's a little bit different from this. We're talking now about the geometry of some object. Here we're talking about a process. 
that evolves in time that could be you know something that moves or the weather that evolves or some something that moves and you're trying to follow this process and and what it what it does and what it may or may not do and if in mathematics we're allowed to have arbitrarily long lengths of time so yeah. we're not constrained by lifespan and trivialities like that and so you you can really study the different scales mm-hmm. of time so for example what happens if you follow the evolution of a process within a certain time scale of a few tens of units of time or hundreds or millions or billions you know what happens and this is really something that i study and you see many systems in which these behavior stabilizes in other words the larger There's the time scale there's some kind of an asymptotic uh, yeah, character it stabilizes it's the typical example i give is is uh, say for example when you flip a coin you know you might be willing to accept that i get three heads in a row or even four heads in a row maybe even five heads in a row but it starts getting very unlikely and if you flip a coin 100 times or 1000 times you get very close to 50% right and we can show mathematically many dynamical systems that this happens that for most initial conditions the statistics of the orbit tends to stabilize so even though the orbit may be very wild or maybe chaotic in dynamical systems the statistics of it if you look at how much time it spends in a certain state so this is your ergodicity point average yes, over time exactly this over. is really my field is is the question of whether you know as you wait in time the proportion of time it spends in there stabilizes and the most remarkable fact is when a system is ergodic which is a kind of technical condition then any initial condition you start from stabilizes to that same amount so they all spend 10% of the time in there but I, for me what is most intriguing is that we also have many examples in which this does not happen you know in which the different scales give different results so to give a practical example this would correspond to a situation where the proportion of heads or tails depends on on on, the, on how many times say if i flip a few tens of times i get 90% heads but if i flip a few thousand times i get 90% tails and if i flip a few million times i get 90% heads so there right. are easy examples of dynamical systems in which the evolution does not stabilize you know depending on the scale you see different statistics and what kind of systems are these are there you I can mean, easily just construct them you need to construct them well, they, they, you can do them mathematically on a piece of paper it's a mathematical model there yes. no real world correlates of, i don't uh, know i can't think it in, like what in, sorts what sorts of systems are ergodic and what sorts of systems are not in mathematical in the in the field of dynamical systems showing ergodicity is one of the main problems it's really it's like almost for the last 100 years um this has been one of the main challenges is to show that typical systems are ergodic or, or at least they have a f- they can be decomposed into a finite number of ergodic po- uh, you know subsets partition so that we So your point one, is that different uh, amounts of time may lead to different uh, kinds of outcomes yes. and endpoints does it yes. depend or, on the magnitude you... or does that depend on where you start so initial its initial so, conditions uh, don't matter no when so in the examples where we can show that things are well behaved statistically 
then you can show that for almost every initial condition, the statistics are the same. Are the same. Yes. But we have these examples. So one of the conjectures is uh, actually my supervisor in Brazil, Palis, he formulated this conjecture, which is what, has what been guiding. And the conjecture is that typically most dynamical systems are well-behaved statistically. So they will have most points, they will, their statistics will converge to something, you know. Mm -hmm. So they still, this is not contradicted with it being chaotic because if you take two initial conditions, they might converge in very different ways or very different ways. But in the end, if you wait long enough, the amount of time they spend here is the same for mm -hmm. these two initial conditions. It's like flipping of the coin. It doesn't matter how I really flip it. In the end, it will converge to 50%. But I think the word, the important word there is typically. Why is it typically? Because we have counterexamples. So we do have examples where this does not happen. And so we'd like to show that these ex these examples are not, they are, say, they're not robust, for example. You know, in there's a general principle that says that when you make a mathematical model, if you're going to, th if you think you're going to observe this in nature, it needs to be a mathematical model where if you change it a little bit, it'll basically remain the same. You know? and, and, and in nature, you, you want presume that, robustness. that things, yeah, things are robust. If they're too delicate, they don't, they don't really survive. exist. Yeah. They yeah. don't yeah. survive. But there might be cases where the other applies, where each time, if you want variability, let us say variability is very important for evolution, right? You yeah. want to have as much variability as possible. Yes. And it seemed to me that your second example where you don't have, you don't reach the same point would be a way to increase variability. Differentiation, speciation, all of that. Any of that, any yeah. kind of variability. Yeah. Variability can, the speciation is particularly large macro, but you can even look at variability. But that in, is something which happens over super long periods of time. Exactly, but you like, can also look at variabilities over days or weeks. It just gives you a full spectrum. But then because biology is very good at what I think of the regulation, and if you pick a successful, if you find by chance you end up in a place that which seems is good stable. for you. Then, then that we, we could be. You could have reached there unstably, but it's good for you. Maybe there are ways to lock it in. Yeah. Then you that's multiply. That's very interesting. Yes. Yes. That's very interesting. So of course you're saying that it might be this this idea that that to be applicable it needs to be a robust system that is eventually may robust. not be. Yes. May but not you can be reach right. there through not knowing which space you will populate. Come with an a chaotic approach and instability, and then you have ways to lock what you want in. And then you sort of feed back to make sure that everything sort of stays the same at that point. Is there a way of saying how many partitions there are? You you referred to partitions a while ago. Yes, how I many, many? Yes. So, how many so partitions? There, as, uh, as you probably know, there's three, essentially there's three kind of quantities in mathematics, like finite, Countably infinity and uncountably infinity. Mm -hmm. right? Yes. <laughs> so um, finite means finite. Countably infinity means that you can count them. So even though there's an infinite, you can uh, list. If you have a set that's whose cardinality is a countable infinity, means you can list it all one, two, three, four in principle. And if you have an uncountable infinity, means you cannot list it. So all the numbers between 0 and 1 are uncountable by the set of points. There's sure. a famous argument where you try to list them and I can easily add show one you more. one, yeah. add one more that's yeah. not there. Yes. 
So, um, so those are the options we have when we look at the dynamics, you look at the dynamical systems. If you had an uncountable different kinds of behaviors, you'd really have no way to control it. It's like every point is really doing something different. So you want to try to classify all the initial conditions depending on what they do. Right? And one of the ways is to classify them according to the statistics of the orbit, for example. So you'd like to say, okay, all these points, they have the same statistics. All these points, they have the same statistics. They spend the same amount of time everywhere. And then you'd like to say that this, exactly, that every point does that, or that you can divide it up into a finite set of, into a parti finite partition, such that within each element they all do the same, or a countable set, ideally. So part of this conjecture is, in fact, that for typical systems, might not be completely ergodic, but they have a finite number of ergodic components. So you can divide them into finite sub subsets partition, such that within each, all the points have a certain statistics and the other points have a certain statistics. So they have, essentially, they are similar in some way. They're similar in some way. Can you think of a way, I mean, this is completely crazy, but yeah. can you, this is in effect is what you describe is what biologists do, right? They t see what they see and they say, you know, they fall into how many categories are they? Right. This you, you, you can make yes. that, where here you use the word statistics. But can you, in mathematics, think of a way in which be rather than being able to categorize, every point has its own property. Yes, the, in which case, what is in an infinite space that they are populating, right? Absolutely. For example, the most trivial example is what we call the identity map. Yeah. F of X equals X. Yes. Where each point just stays where it is. And then every point has its own evolution, which is just So in a way, this is. identity map would be the opposite of ergodic system. Yes, the identity way, map is the one exactly, although it's a kind of trivial example, yeah. but there are non-trivial examples similar, you know, where pretty much every point does its own thing. In this case, it's trivial because its own thing means just staying where it is. So, you know, nothing really moves. But you can think of it as, yeah, I mean, staying where you are is also something. It's not just... Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in this case, every single point is staying where it is. So there's no, each point has a different statistics. This point is staying where it is. This other point is staying where it is. They have no interaction at all. So they have no... So there's an uncountable set of different statistics. So in that case, you can't have any feedback, feed-forward interaction, anything between all of these points. This is why we kind of uh, saying that this should be exceptional behavior and not a typical behavior. We'd mm -hmm. like to say... yeah. That so typically, typically you would have these stable ends. Yeah, we'd like to show that typically, if you take a point at random, you can only come up with at most a finite number of different uh, classifications. But it depends very much on what you mean by typical. So you know, mathematicians <laughs> they say, okay, if you think typical in this way, then it's false because, for example, we know examples where there's a count there's many examples in which there's a countable infinity of possible categories right or depending on the initial condition you can have and then you say okay but is this typical or not typical well from one point of view considered typical but from a different point of view we can say actually if we measure typicality in a different way then it's not typical and so mathematics is a process of seeing what you which probably is one is similar to science you see what you've got and you try to, 
impose uh, describe it describe it describe it and say okay and and I think the nice thing about mathematics is that it allows many different kinds of descriptions you're allowed to say well in from this in this sense this is an exceptional behavior in this other sense this is a typical behavior because but this in a sense is semantics right well it's when you precise. say typical it's it just means that it occurs more frequently but we give a precise definition of what we mean by more frequently more frequently in this sense it's it goes back to amount actually because after all more frequently is about the amount yes. right so again you could say if you have a, a, a two parameter family of yeah of 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 dynamical system that depend on two parameters right and it could be that as you if you fix one particular parameter and you change the other one then all the systems satisfy a certain property but if you change this parameter they don't so is this typical or not typical well if you fix that parameter this behavior is typical because for all the other parameters yeah. you get that yeah. Yeah. but if you fix that it's, so in a sense you have an axiomatic system you're saying that this is fixed therefore everything follows yes. right yeah so do you have an instinct on um, the relationship between count and amount we've discussed a whole bunch of systems all kinds of things so what's the relationship between size and number i have thought about this a lot since you proposed this topic and i unfortunately i find that i cannot switch off my just uh, what we call in italian professional deformation of thinking of counting just as a form of measuring amount of of points you know i cannot get beyond that for me when you say counting it's just measuring hmm. so it's just a particular instance of measuring something zero dimensional which is just a set of points instead of something one dimensional or one and a half dimensional or whatever so i cannot and that and that intuition doesn't change as you go, as you go into higher dimensions well you don't count anymore right for me counting i can't get beyond the fact that counting is just a special case of measuring you use counting when you the objects you're measuring are distinct objects rather than something continuous it's a it's so called zero dimensional hausdorff measure in yeah. a technical sense <laughs> yeah um i can't uh, think of counting in any other way you know you can i can think of counting also as i was saying you count the frequency of zeros and ones for example and then you you count and then you look at the proportion and then you look at some limits so the counting can kind of go to a limit you know counting is a finite object but if you count a sequence of things and gets more and more and at each stage you're looking at how many heads or how many tails came out then in the limit you get some information to do with this and these are these are, these are and you think of these in whole number terms real number terms counting um, i always think of whole numbers but you know the moment you get into this frequentist category proportions and so on then we are in real number territory aren't we that's right so you count but then you take the proportion and that becomes then a rational number rational number yeah but then of course in the limit of a sequence of rational numbers might be an irrational number the limit so you have a at each time n you say okay how many of these n flips of the coin are heads and you'll get 7 out of 10 or 200 out of 350 So these are all rational numbers you get a sequence but then as this sequence gets closer and closer as n goes becomes larger and larger you might be approximating an irrational, irrational number. number 
Yeah, so in the end, you might get that the proportion, the limit, the asymptotic proportion of heads and tails might be irrational. And in and, and in your instance, Sandhya, I mean, we go back to this distance between mitochondria once again. Those are continuous variables, right? There is no, there is no two inches apart each, and so on. I mean, I know. No, there yeah. isn't. There doesn't. In fact, that's what we expected initially when I started doing that. It's going to be two inches apart or multiples of two, and right. that's not what we see. It's actually a distribution, and that's not unreasonable. Lots of things in in biology are a distribution you know so you have a large number of them which are some number apart in this particular case and there are things which are less and there are things which are more so it's like a curve right and uh, it's a it you know if you want to describe so it it's a gamma of, distribution so this is within sort. each individual you which is each inside within, within inside each, each individual. individual and the proportions you know the the medians the these yes. numbers they are depend also on the individual uh, on oh. that particular category, yes. In that particular neuron, that's what right. we see. And, you know, there are six of them that we look at and they're very similar to each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think any neuron that you take, you're going to get something. It may not be the same number, but the shape of the curve is going to look more or less the same, mm-hmm. which is what, you know, it's not really the number which matters at that point. Mm-hmm. It's the shape because your number is going to change depending on how long your initial dimension is, right? So if you're, and so, and also what is red, which we don't know too much about. We know that it's likely to be physical and chemical together. We have some clues as to what it might be, Mm -hmm. but we certainly don't know how they sense each other to make sure that they're not too close together. So, uh, but I would say coming back to what you said about size and amount, that's a very interesting question actually about numbers and amount. Because that is very relevant in biological systems. You can have numbers with very small volumes and you can have large numbers where each object has a very small volume or you can have large numbers which each object has a very large volume. And um, that's, I think, going to be very important consideration. In our system, we actually, the problem that we specifically look at, I don't have an answer to it because we are, we don't... It's hard to measure, but I would but that's, think... that's an experimental difficulty. That's or... an experimental difficulty. But there must be, because volume is what in my, in, my, in my mind, the volume is going to be very closely related to function, hmm. right? So you might, have an, you might have the same number, but if the volume of that particular organelle is very small, it may not be able to be to generate as much for instance ATP or have as much function as something which has a larger volume. So I think here the relationship is going to be very important and very important in terms for the cell and for the cell's function. Do we know what that relationship is? We don't. If but that, what what ends up dominating in terms of uh, I know this is plain speak so this is not biology but are you implying that volume ends up being uh, I think there must be a way a good indicator of uh, so I'll give I'll give I'll give you one one observation that we have and I'll give you a hypothesis that I have sure so when when I said is that when you have growth of the neuron you have when these neurons drift apart a new object is added whatever is added is always very small 
Hmm. And with time, it increases in size. Now, this is correlative. Right? And it increases in size as they continue become, to go farther apart? No, the individual object which you added, which was, say, a point, now becomes a circle. Right. Right? So that means its volume is added. The count hasn't changed. Yeah. Count hasn't changed for quite a while, but the volume has added, which tells you that volume must be somehow important to getting that functionalized that one spot. That means there has to be, in my mind, is, the, is that just happening stochastically? Or is that something with time uh, is a response to what is happening around you or within you? And that would be an important thing to try to find out, right? Because why would you want to increase that, that individual object in volume? And why is like a new object or a new mitra contract coming up as opposed to the previous two growing in volume or something like that? Right? Yes. And so why? that's, I mean, that is why I think what you are sensing, the reason I think that happens is because you must be sensing something which as the length scale increases, either decreases in the midpoint or increases in the midpoint. So you tend to add over there in the middle to reduce that gradient. They That's my have, hypothesis. They don't have a standard volume that they always go to? So you're saying... So it varies, it varies. In all mm -hmm. biological systems, that volume varies, you know. I mean, it's it's not... But again, all of these variability are with a distribution, right? I mean, yes, yes, with a distribution. I mean, they with wouldn't be entirely random. Yeah, they are not entirely random. You will not get something which is 500,000 times, you know. Right. You will, yeah. It will be within a small... It's like, yes. you know, like when I gave the yes. example Again, of the... the order of magnitude issue. Yeah. yeah, it's an order of magnitude issue, which could be physically... It could be due to physical constraints as well. There's no way to dissociate that because there's so many parameters which we are not able to test and still keep a healthy cell alive. Mm. A, lo a lot would also depend on the kinds of forces at work inside the cell, right? Again, yes. if you think of it in physical chemical terms, yes. right? So you need surface area, you need places to go and react, to meet with others. More than anything else, the size of the pipe is going to matter, no? Exactly. You, it's just like if you if you don't have the, the place which you're sitting in, if your room... Supposing the ceiling of your room is like here, yeah. I'll have to scrunch down, yeah. and you know maybe there isn't a point where in which it can scrunch down any further. We don't know how these interplay, but there must be that. There interplay. must be something. There must be because for measuring, for instance, cell division, cell size, you know that membrane tension is very important. But people have not taken the next step to start looking at what happens for organelles and things inside cells. Do the same principles that apply, or is it a different scale? What is your instinct, uh, Stefano? I mean, I know you've heard about this only for the last hour or so, but do you think uh, this instinct of Sandhya is right? That very, there must be something. I'm very curious uh, when you use the word stochastic, whether it's stochastic or not, oh, because that <laughs> links very much. And uh, I, so I don't know how directly it answers your question, but um, uh, and I don't know how directly my experience of, of the concept of stochastic relates, but... The, when I talked about describing the statistics of a dynamical system, what I meant, I guess what I was referring to is that these dynamical systems are deterministic in the sense that right. they do not, there's no randomness, there is a mechanism, you know, just like flipping a coin is also deterministic because you apply a force, right. there's no randomness to it, right? And however, we often think of it as being stochastic. We think of coin, flipping a coin is almost the 
standard example of a random. We say it's as random as flipping a coin. You know, we think of it as stochastic. Yes, yes, so yes. in my field, there is a, for me, there's a very big discussion about what stochastic means. And so I guess what Sandhya means is that these relations between size and number must be deterministic. Yes, I would say that the the growth of something you might have size and number i don't think that the size the number directly relates to the size but once you have something you have some kind of mechanism to make it grow otherwise you should have many events where they don't grow and some events where they do grow but if you see I've... every event grows then well i would argue to... that deterministic and stochastics are not opposite of each ah, other okay. actually which is i think is actually the, the same right. as what right. you're saying so right. in a, because stochastic to me is not a mechanism i don't know of any mechanism i think we use it usually as a synonym for unpredictable really when we say stochastic we mean we don't know how to predict you know it's again it's that objective was a subjective issue right it's it's not an we objective it, we, fact about uh, yes it's not a, it's not a, a it's not a, an ontological it's not fact thing about, about the yeah. the mechanism that we use yeah. right and uh, that's why when we describe coin flipping we talk of it as being random when we refer to the fact that it's unpredictable but when you look at the mechanism it's clearly deterministic right and i think there's a the lot the outcome of, is unpredictable the outcome is unpredictable it doesn't mean the mechanism is stochastic in the sense of right. and i think there's a lot of scope for the i think i know there's a little bit of discussion in that in biology but my feeling is that there could be much more better understanding of this of of uh, especially when you see these curves these gaussian curves or whatever these distributions that you talk about often they are they they what they mean and we think of it as okay it's stochastic and it just these are the probabilities of getting the various outcomes but it's the same with if you flip 100 times a coin for 100 times each time you get this curve right in terms of the outcome it's always deterministic systems yeah so sometimes the the outcome looks unpredictable but that doesn't mean there's not an underlying It looks like I think I should mechanism. just take all my data and not allow you to do anything this evening except talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the the the, the the manner in which your systems are different is because they sit in an environment and there are Yes. I mean in yes. in, in real yes. terms. Yes. No, of course. They're not so they they are in a box. In a sense all of your things that are happening are they are not in some kind of box which limits the kinds of outcomes that can come out. You really in absolute space and time if you want to look at it like that you can but have for, any outcome but, for but all, not for us but for all practical purposes for all practical purposes for the neuron does the outer world exist like for the kinds of forces and tugs and pulls we're talking about yes it does it does it does i mean i don't know for the organelle but for the cell definitely it does because it has to by the very fact its identity its shape and size and geometry is intrinsically linked and position is intrinsically linked to its identity so the outside world matters enormously for every cell in the body there are properties which are intrinsic to it then you have a really tough job ahead sandhya on, <laughs> yeah. on figuring out this relation if no, you ever do yeah you better figure it out yeah. <laughs> i mean wanting to figure it out for too long <laughs> and, and whenever you do just send stefan an email saying <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'll go one one you know one millimeter by the time i meet him next <laughs> no terrific i think this is a good note to end this on thanks to both of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you for coming Thank you. Thank you very much.